humanitarian. Before we begin, I'd like to say a big thank you to all of you who have provided feedback to the first episodes. Trumanitarian is very much an experiment, and I think the only way to get it right is if there's a really solid feedback loop from all of you who listen in so that we know where to take the show. So please keep your comments coming. We appreciate the encouragement and the, the, the stuff you like, but we also really listen to the criticism and the stuff that you think we can do better. So send us your comment. You can reach us on email info at truemanitarian.org or on Twitter at the handle at truemanitarian. Or you can leave a message on our Facebook page or on the LinkedIn page we have set up. We had planned to put out an episode today on crowdsourcing and tech and the role it can play in decision-making in sudden onset disasters. But we had to postpone the recording of that interview. We hope to share that with you very soon. So instead, I'd like to share with you a part of a conversation I had with Siri Melkertelier. Siri has a background in public health and demography and worked for many years with the UN, with UNFPA, WHO and a number of other agencies. In the early 1990s, Siri returned to Denmark and became head of international for Danish Red Cross and that's where I first met her. She claims to be retired, but you can't see it if you don't know it. She continues to teach at Copenhagen University, she does research, and she very often meddles in the Danish public debate on issues around development, humanitarian aid, and demography. We come into the conversation at a point where we have spent a lot of time discussing partnership, trust, how to work in development situations, how that's different from working in humanitarian situations, and we are touching upon the nexus before we quickly move on to standards and then information and decision-making. Please enjoy the conversation. These days we call it the nexus. Yeah, I think we called it something like that before too. It's been the there for... The gray zone, uh, oh. linking relief to development. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of different concepts that yeah. essentially say the same yeah. things. How do you get these two systems to yes. operate seamlessly? Yeah. Now, have we gotten better at it? I think we have gotten better in some ways, in many ways, actually. I think... Huh. I think, for example, when I started working with the Red Cross, that was in 1992, we had no standards. Or we, as a field, had few standards. You would have the Rwanda crisis in 1994, and people came out and had wildly different standards for what they should do. That makes it much more difficult for the local government or the local society to take it over when you leave, and hopefully you do leave. And so if you have one pump that's one kind and another pump which is a different kind, I was working a lot with pumps at those days, um, again, it's very difficult for the local population to know how to fix them. That's a, a developmental issue also, but in, in a humanitarian situation, you're installing all this stuff and then you're leaving behind a mess because you're teaching people who will not be able to get... Let me give an example. I think it was Myanmar. Was it Myanmar or was it Cambodia? No, it was Cambodia, where one of the assessments was that all these donors had trained 20, 30, 40 different medical um, categories, none of which were compatible with the local definition of what a doctor should do or what a nurse should do or whatever else. They, had no, they couldn't be integrated afterwards. What a shame! But you don't have time. So it's this internal fight against time, which I think is very interesting, where you have to cut corners. Anyway, you, you asked whether it got better. Yeah. So I think we got better at the standards. 
I think we really got a lot better on that. Uh, you know, everybody's citing some of these interagency uh, committee uh, um, standards or the sphere standards. Everybody's citing these. That's nice. I like it. <laughs> not that you can always live up to it. Some of them are stupid, but at least you um, uh, not realistic. But at least you know more or less what you can disagree with. Um, and um, yeah, so that's a good thing. People are, I think, in general, you don't have quite as many. People who have never been outside Denmark who suddenly arrive in Rwanda and are supposed to look after a refugee camp, you know, I mean, no, you don't have that so much anymore, so much. Um, coordination, now we may disagree on this a little bit. I think we've gotten better. At least you have meetings, but of course, I mean meetings, this is a horrible word, but I, of course a meeting can just be a waste of time. I think they figured out in Mozambique that they spent 40% of their efforts on coordination. Something like that. I mean, with, you know, instead of getting, and we still don't have, and this really upsets me because I am data obsessed, um, is, um, you know, when you have 40, 50 different health surveys in Haiti by different organizations with different definitions, so you cannot get a, you know, wasting time and you're not getting a normal picture out of it. Just to be able to show with your own log um, t shirt on TV that you have the data. This is a horrible part of it. Yeah. Just to get back to you on the coordination side yes. of things, right? Sorry. Yes. So I, I don't disagree that we've gotten better. Right. I think my issue is... Because we were so bad. There's that, <laughs> but there's also that we, we have somehow detached the, the exercise of coordination from the benefit we yeah, derive yeah, on yeah, it, right? Yeah, so yeah, what's yeah, the return yeah, yeah. on yeah, investment? Yeah. It's sterile. What's, what, what is the optimal level of duplication? Yeah. If you spend $10 million coordinating... Yeah. You can duplicate distribution for nine million dollars yeah. and still get a better outcome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cost benefit of it. Yeah. Yes. And 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 that's I think is is where my issue lies. And I, I probably tend to think that that we need to replace coordination and uh, co sorry, we need to replace coordination with collaboration yeah. as the central operating principles. Yeah. yeah. But but that is a very long story, yeah. and I'd love to talk data with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So should we jump into the data sure. discussion? I mean, so so in a humanitarian situation, you're under time pressure. You often have no clue what's going on, yeah. and still you have to make decisions. Yeah. So, so talk a bit around your 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 take on on data decision making support. Yeah. What is okay. good enough? I think um, I'd like to start out with some quotes from other people with which I totally agree. One of them is, I've heard it from Gilbert Burnham, from Johns Hopkins, I don't know whether he made it up, but he says, public health is about making decisions on incomplete information. And that is, of course, especially so in a humanitarian situation. But let's face it, that's the rest of life too. You're always making decisions on incomplete information. It's just that in a humanitarian situation, things are changing so quickly, and you don't have time to gather all those data. So, I mean, how do you, how do you find some really smart data? and not just collect data. And so then I want to quote what I believe is uh, somebody called, um, what's his called, Garfield? What's his first name? Uh, Dr. Richard Garfield. Yeah, Richard Garfield. And uh, you also quote that in ACAPS. Um, and that is, um, number one, know what you want to know. Number two, make sense, not data. And number three, it's better to be approximately right than precisely wrong. I love those. Because people gather data on things that really are not useful. And what they often do is to say, oh, we have this situation, everything is new, we have to go and gather data everywhere. You don't have to. You should be 
brave enough to collect data all the way from the, the uh, Afghanistan, the Rish Safed, the white beard guy. He knows a lot of stuff. You, um, the taxi driver, or the driver, always knows a lot of stuff, uh, as well as what, walking around and seeing things and what you can get online and what you know the standards are from whatever. And you don't even have to necessarily always look it up in Sphere. You should have some things in your cortex of what you can expect. Otherwise, why do you go to university if you don't expect anything? And, and so I think it's, you know, that thing of making sense, not data, not more data. Because if you want really statistically significant stuff, it'll take you three years and take cost $3 million. And then the last one, be approximately right rather than precisely wrong. You're always operating within uncertainties. So exactly as you were saying before, cost benefit of making it even more precise. For somebody like me who is sort of swayed by statistical thinking, that doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, you don't have to have it precise. It doesn't have to be confidence level of this and that. You use the word brave. Yeah. Have we become less brave as a community? Probably. I mean, bravery is, to my mind, is having the courage to, maybe that's what comes when you standardize everything. Then you think, okay, I go according to the standards, otherwise I get fired. Um, so you don't have to think. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah, I think that might be part of it, that um, you don't have to think yourself because it's already there. That's very dangerous in general in life, and especially humanitarian situations. I mean, I've been working on and off with humanitarian. It was the full-time job for 10 years when I was director of, of, of Red Cross International, but uh, International Red Cross and Danish Red Cross. Um, but, um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I'm not sure. And I don't think anybody's come up with something I really think this is really what it is. But I think when you do have all these standards and coordination, maybe you say, okay, I'll just do what everybody else is saying, not rock the boat. So standards make us less brave? Depends on what kind of person you are, I think. I think standards make me more brave because if I agree with them, <laughs> uh, I often disagree, you know. But I mean, if you again, if you go something like human rights standards or humanitarian law standards, you are a much stronger person coming into somewhere. You feel your, you f your shoulders are down because you know what, is, what you're thinking is something that has been signed by the whole world, all the countries of the world almost. So you think, this is not just me, Siri, saying this. This is something where I know that we should have some of it. It's a great difference, huge difference. And that one, I think, is, is a, a good bravery, mm -hmm. good courage. Um, but of course, you also have to have the courage of saying right now, not human rights, don't worry, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, sometimes human rights, you can't necessarily get through to 100%, but you can say, okay, get 30%, whatever it is. But I mean, you also have to have the courage to, certainly on the standards that are technical standards, and say, look, maybe we won't be able to provide 15 meters of water, maybe we can do with less, and just the first weeks, but as long as we know we're working towards something or other, and that other people are also working toward that, that's where coordination should come in, that you're not working toward different standards. That's what went wrong in Rwanda, when everybody's working on different standards, and then what do you, what do, you do with the population when you leave? Does that make sense? Yeah, very much so. 
So, I mean, one of the things, um, so I believe those four principles I mentioned before by Gilbert Burnham and, and by, uh, by, by, um, oh. Richard Garfield. Richard Garfield, yes. Um, and all of them actually require you to think. You don't just go to the sphere handbook and says it says that 3% of the population will be such and such. You, yes, you go to that, but you also try to think yourself. You know the difference between a roundabout and a, a traffic light? No, tell me. Roundabouts are safer yeah. than traffic lights, but most people prefer traffic lights because it's clear when you go and when you don't go. It's either yeah, yeah. green. Whereas when you have a roundabout, you have to be aware of your other... Yeah, yeah, yeah. People in traffic, yeah. and, and, and you, you have to have a much stronger yeah. situation awareness. And I sometimes think that, that the problem we have is that we... It's so nice that it's red or green, so yes. we know whether to go or not. Yes. And then we stop thinking yeah. about the other players, and, 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 and actually we, we end up with a system that is less safe, and especially because we work in very messy situations. Yeah. You need something that you can hold on to, yeah. because you're going to make... You are, I mean, when I teach this, uh, when I've been teaching this course on health and emergencies for 10 years, and one of the words we use all the time is dilemmas. Mm -hmm. There is no answer. It's something where you have to make a decision. It's not, um, yeah, it's dilemmas. You may not have an answer, an easy one, red or green. So how do you institutionalize that? Because I think the problem is that we, we obviously don't want operations like Rwanda, yeah. which was a disgrace. Yeah. And everybody, it's a good standard to have of what not to do. Yes. But if we then lose the, sen the, the practicality or the, the sensibility of how to apply these standards. Yeah. How do you do that? How do you institutionalize I don't that? know. Um, I don't know. What I think works well is to have a learning thinking, a learning um, atmosphere in the office. That's very difficult if you're in a hurry. But what I find very interesting, and I've, I've found it works, is that every time you've done a major thing in your group, then you just have, instead of doing an evaluation, yes, evaluations are also great, but instead of doing that, to have it built into your daily work, so that you sit maybe once a week and say, what went right and what went wrong? And you, if you're the boss, you start out by saying what you yourself think you did wrong. Or you could do better next time. It's not right or wrong, but you know, things where you thought, hmm, maybe this, then it becomes okay to talk about what's good and what's bad without saying, ah, you're to blame. Sometimes what I've done, but that's only helpful if you have a wall, you don't always have a wall, but I put some of the, um, the problems up on the wall and then, um, so that people sit there and look at them and say, for example, if you have an auditor report and they say, you know, you don't have backup, so you don't, some of it's very innocent and some of it's not so innocent. That's what I did sometimes in my office in North Korea. And we put this on the wall. And then every time uh, we had a meeting, we would look at them and say, have we progressed on it? Then it externalizes the problem. It's not your problem. It's something we have together. Now, I don't know whether this, to my mind, that helps you become willing to face things that you could have done better without feeling that you have to go and whip yourself. So maybe what it boils down to is accountability. Yes. 
I think that's at least a very large part of it. Now, I'm all in favor of, you know, are you for or against? I'm for accountability. But it's just how it's done or to whom. And it's nothing new, I'm saying. It's just so difficult to implement. Uh, I mean, this is not because stupid people are stupid or nasty. It's difficult. Uh, for example, let me give you an example. So during some of these food crises in uh, North Korea, I was also um, there for some of it. And we would have in the central medical store of the government, there would be 10, 20 different rub holes with medicines in them from each of the different agencies, from Red Cross, uh, from uh, UNICEF, from everybody else. And God help me, I also made one for UNFPA. So we had all these rub holes, and each of them had their own truck bringing stuff out. And there was no coordination uh, because the government didn't have any clue what was in them. Now, you can most countries, you don't agree on everything with the government. But each of these rub holes, why were they there? Why, they, why couldn't they just get together? Well, I mean, uh, and train people locally to look after them. It's a great job to look after rub holes. It's very interesting. So why is it? Well, because they were all accountable to their own donors. They had to account for how many um, you know, maternity kits they had brought out. And it couldn't be that somebody else was accountable for it. No, they had to have their own truck where they could tick off. With, and so it's partially also the accountability to your donors. And of course, also accountability to the public. You have to be able to get on TV with your T-shirt that says UNFPA. Nobody tells you to do that, but that's how you get money. If you get on TV with your own T-shirt, and then people say, oh, these people know. They have the data, they must know. And so the interesting thing about what you just said is that, that we know this. Yeah. And we know this fully. And we don't. We and we've can't. seen it for decades, right? Yes. And I mean, I mean, people in humanitarian business basically want to do, to make the world better. Like, I have that idealism. Basically, I think that idealism is there for most people. Yes, there are also many other things. There are the perks, there's the this and that. But I think most of them, at some level, most people in the world, I think, no, maybe not every, <laughs> I sometimes mistake things. But uh, I think most of them working in humanitarian actually would like to make the world better. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and so I think the really interesting question is, you, we started this conversation yeah. talking about idealism, yeah. and clearly you're driven by that. Yes. And you tell me that the years haven't chipped away at your no. idealism. Why not? Why, you're there in North Korea. You put up your own rub hole. You're part of the problem. Yes. Why doesn't it chip away at your idealism? Well, I guess maybe I'm just the person I am. I mean, I, don't, I think there are different kinds of... I just have an eternal positive attitude. I can't help it. I was born with it. Um, but it's also because, despite all of this, you can see there is, there is progress. Of course there's progress. I mean, um, the uh, maternity kits we, we provided in, in, in North Korea, of course they made a difference. They have very... You have to recognize the strength of each country also. I don't know whether I'm allowed to talk about this, but actually North Korea, they have very educated people, and they have very educated professionals. And um, um, I remember once walking with one of my uh, Korean um, uh, colleagues. We were visiting, just sort of stopping the jeep because there was a temple we wanted to walk around. And some guy who was looking after the temple came over and said, what's this foreigner doing? I said, that's what I was told. And, um, and then the, um, my colleague explained that we're here because we want to help the maternal mortality. And the man was so happy. He smiled and he... 
um, you know, that thank you, thank you, thank you. He wants to do that too. I mean, there's this motivation that you can find in your colleagues and normal people in the country, and you can actually help to, um, to, to, to improve it. And we did. The maternal mortality improved. And you can have all kinds of discussions with people on the way and say, but what about this guideline and what about that guideline? How did it work? Yes. And you can help them actually have the accountability, a, a, a sensible accountability, and, and let them get interested in making things better. Because you can show them, not show them, they know, but I mean, you can be, as again, the sort of the stepping stone, you can be the one who's helping them to access new information. You are their window on the world. And so with your public health background, yeah. we, as we speak, we're in the middle of one of the biggest yes. global crises yeah. we've, we've ever seen. What, what do you see? <laughs> well, I think it's very interesting because I was telling the head of our department, I was saying, look, we just have to tape the whole thing and then replay it in August. We don't have to teach anymore because people are learning all kinds of concepts that, you know, I couldn't, you know, I spent hours trying to teach <laughs> <laughs> the thought of herd immunity, or what is called in English a uh, reproduction number, um, that is um, how quickly you, you pass it on to others. Um, those things, it was, you know, I really had to struggle to get people to understand it. And now everybody knows. And one of the most important things, I think, I hope, at least some people have taken on board, is that we don't know everything. And that we have to be, as Gilbert Burnett says, we have to be humble enough to say we don't know everything. And on the other hand, we have to be brave enough to do something. I think that that's very wise saying. And I think that COVID-19 is teaching people that we don't know very much. Actually, we're learning all the time. Yeah, it really does test our tolerance for ambiguity, I think. Yes. And different countries are doing it so differently. And what do the leaders say? Do they talk about we or do they talk about I and they? You know, it's all this, how do you approach public health? I think it's very interesting. What are the implications for the humanitarian sector? Yeah, a lot of people have talked about that. I don't know. I think one of the things some journalists ask me is some of the, it's... Um, I think it's two-way learning. One of the most important things, I think, is this ethical principle of um, triage. Um, where uh, I was talking about with a journalist who said, what can we learn from the humanitarian sector? And I said, one of the most um, scary parts of humanitarian ethics is triage, where if you have, um, the difference usually is between mass casualty and uh, uh, multiple casualty and mass casualty. Mass casual, multiple casualty, sorry, is when you have, you're stretched, but you can still manage. And you can, and you can still treat those who are most sick first. Versus mass casualty, where you have, it's overwhelmed. You and run out of ambulances. You run out of ambulances or beds or whatever it is and you then start treating those who are most likely to survive. So this scary thing we've had in several countries, I won't mention names, where they say we're not going to treat people over 60. And it may be a humanitarian principle you're living up to. That's pretty scary. Uh, and I mean, the question is also, when do you decide that? You know, if you're really overwhelmed, maybe that's what happens. 
If you're not that overwhelmed, is that a little bit too early to put that principle into place? So it's timing also, also in context specific. Yeah. You, you're nodding. I mean, you think it's scary. Well, I think that we talked about empathy, and I think yeah. the fact that we have become quote unquote the victims of this yeah. one <laughs> may enhance our yes, empathy. Yes, 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 absolutely. I also think it reshapes our understanding of how physically we work together. You know, the, I, I do think it will disrupt the way we work in, in, in a number of ways. Yeah. Um, the thing that stands out to me is how we handle ambiguity. Yeah. And I think where we go wrong is we always want to put it in a box. Yes, but that's exactly what I mean also, that, you know, we don't know everything. Yeah. We don't know what the situation is and how to handle it. And um, I think it's very dangerous to say we know everything and we are doing it the right way. I don't think we know yet. And I, I really, really hope, because I think it is a very healthy thing for people to know that we don't know everything and that we do have dilemma, dilemmas and ambiguity, as you say. I'm hoping that will stay. Yeah, I, I, I do too. And I think there, I think there are two different uh, aspects to the ambiguity. Yeah. On one side, we actually don't know what things mean. We don't know a lot about right. the disease. Yeah. And on the other hand, we don't have good data. Right. So we don't know what the dashboard is telling us. Right. And, and we don't know whether the speed is correct either. Right. And of course, if you've gone to university, you know that um, viruses usually behave in such and such a way. But at this point, we really don't know, for example, the big thing is Im uh, immunity. We don't know how much and how quickly and uh, the, all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, without that, it's very difficult to decide on the strategy. And so what it, what it really has done for me is, is uh, my thinking is around humanitarian action as a narrative. Yeah. Right. How, how do you shape the narrative? What, right. what, what's the story of COVID-19? Yeah. We just don't know. We have a whole bunch of assumptions yeah. around, oh, Africa is going to be really yeah. badly affected. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Yeah. Latin America right now is really badly affected. Yeah. Why is that? Why is it, you know, is it because we don't measure it in, in certain African countries? Is it because we, d we just don't know? And I think the most scary part of it, scary being because the numbers are scary, is, you know, are we, some people say, no, um, in the beginning, I had some empathy or sympathy for thinking, let's just develop herd immunity and some people will die. But maybe, so I mean, the whole thought that you have to weigh the economic impact because economic impact has health impact. So you may have more people dying from economic impact than from Corona, from COVID. And... Um, so I'm a public health person, of course I want to save lives, and I also see the impact of if you don't do it and if everybody gets, and the long-term effects, I mean, so many things we don't know. But it's that basic dilemma, which I think is so interesting when different countries are uh, approaching it differently, and I don't think we know the answer yet. No, but it's also clear that probably it was right to be quite cautious in the beginning absolutely. because of the high levels of ambiguity. Or, yes, or, absolutely. Know. And that's um, not to quote anybody, but actually the Danish prime minister said that, you know, we don't know everything. We will make mistakes. I thought that was a good starting point. And she says also the worst thing we could do is to wait. Yes, I totally agree with that. 
um, I'm just also, you know, obviously the whole world is in a crisis, but we hopefully will know more so that we can um, slowly creep out of it. Maybe a last question for you. Would you still pick the same path with what oh, you yes. know? You still go to the yes. same, yeah. Again, because I think it is, you know, part of a life ideal, but also because it is eternally interesting. It keeps your brain going 24 hours a day. No, not quite. But, um, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and because you learn so much. I mean, the same things that I was saying before. You learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about other people. And I think and you deal with people and their motivations. Yeah. I don't see how it could be better. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. It's about the rights and the freedom to be. For people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each who will lead. Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks. Fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate. And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs>